Last week, we started a sermon series on discipleship, and we're calling it Follow Me. Will you all just say that together with me? Follow me. Okay. Does the idea and thought of discipleship get you excited? Anybody? That's why I'm preaching on it. The word disciple or discipleship is found 269 times in the New Testament, 238 of those in the four Gospels alone. The word Christian, on the other hand, is found three times in all of the New Testament. The last time it's used in the book of Acts, it's referring to Jews We're followers of Jesus, but Christianity at that point was no longer just a Jewish thing. It embraced Gentiles, and so they needed to figure out a name. The New Testament is a book about discipleship, by disciples, for disciples. Let me say that again. If you read the New Testament, the New Testament is, in a nutshell, a book about discipleship, by disciples and for disciples. The launching passage last week that some of you are so familiar with is Matthew 28. Matthew 28, where it says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And again, and I made fun of this verse last Sunday, and I'm glad you guys found some enjoyment in that. Because we've memorized this. What does the next verse say? Therefore, go and make what? Disciples of all nations. So let's get this straight. Jesus is about to give to his followers the very last thing, the most important thing that he wants them to be about. And he says, of all things, go make disciples. And in case you're new to our church, when Jesus said that, he was about to unveil a plan not to get people from earth to heaven, although that's a good thing. He's talking about unveiling his plan to restore, renew, reconcile everything in all of creation. He says, my plan to do that is, he says, go and what? Make disciples. As he said last week, listen, listen. It's great that we're leading Bible study, life groups. It's great that we're having coffee with people. It's great that, you know, we're being a good parent and good Christian witnesses in our workplaces, so on and so forth. Those are good things that could, listen, lead to making disciples. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said what? Say it with me. Make disciples. And that's a big thing, and we're going to unpack it in the upcoming weeks as he said last Sunday, briefly, making disciples doesn't have to be this hierarchical, I have to know everything. It's simply about inviting others to follow Jesus as you follow Jesus. And the question that Jesus left to them is to make disciples. And by the way, when Jesus said that to his disciples, I, none of them are doing what you and I are doing right now, which is what, why, 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 what, what's disciple making? Why, why would we do that? Or how do we do that? Why? Because for three years, they saw Jesus what? Model it for them. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said make disciples because for three years Jesus walked with them and modeled for them what he was now asking them to do. Listen, from the very beginning, you got to get this. Being a disciple and making disciples were never supposed to be separated. 
Being a disciple, making disciples are intricately linked. They go together. You cannot, and I know this is strong, call yourself a disciple of Jesus if you are not making disciples of Jesus. And one and the same. So the question we're exploring is, well, what's gone wrong? Why is it that it's such like a new thing? Or when I say disciples, you get you excited. You got all kinds of things that you're thinking about. Well, one of the problems of this is that I think the modern church today, because we fail to understand what Jesus says, has become a consumer spectator thing. The modern church today is one in which people come, like you, sit in pews, look at somebody, do their thing, and then we go home and we just sort of do what? I'm going to say a bunch of things that you just need to jot down, although last week I railed on taking notes. Just jot things down and unpack these things. One of these things is this, the, the church doesn't exist for you. You are the church and you exist for the world. Can I get an amen? The church doesn't exist for you. Like I'm here to consume. You, you're the church and you exist for the world. Another way to say that is there's enormous difference between a church that supports missions and a church that's on mission. A church that supports mission is we go, who are the super Christians? Who are the really committed? Who are the disciple makers? And we support them. A church on a mission is, hello, anybody. We are all disciple makers. Is New Community a church that supports missions, or are we a church on a mission? Hmm? Uh, I don't know about you, but I feel uncomfortable with the Christianity that asks for nothing, that demands nothing, that costs nothing. Is anybody with me? I'm not comfortable with Christianity that asks for nothing. Listen, do you know what word? you know what word is not in the New Testament? Mm. Volunteer. The word volunteer, you won't find that. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14. And so therefore, those who are, there's no volunteer. You know what word is in the scriptures? is serve. Serving one another is not heroic. Serving one another is not exceptional. Serving one another is core to discipleship. Can I get an amen? Come on, guys. So as we talk about discipleship, I, I know we need to like sort of unpack and unlearn, listen, listen, unlearn things. We talk a lot here, right, Ruth, about unlearning things as a way of transformation. It's not just about learning new things, but we got to deconstruct and take away layers, especially those of us that kind of grew up in the church. It's like, ay, 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 ay. Can't tell you the number of times. For example, last week, somebody came up to me and said, when I think of the word disciple, discipleship, here's what I think of Pastor Peter, and ah, I think of a legalistic, rules-oriented, and just pound information, and also one that was devoid of justice. It's just this insular Christianity thing. And I would like to say to anybody that goes, ah, disciple, discipleship, here's what I, I live by Michelangelo's maxim, which is criticized by creating. What do I mean? Criticized by creating something better. Don't just criticize and sit on the sidelines. That's lazy. That's easy. Criticize, critique by creating something better. Write better legislation. Start better businesses. Become better teachers. Become better disciple makers. Criticize by creating. Can I get an amen? 
So if you're uncomfortable with the word, don't just reject it. Say, how do I redeem this for the glory of God? And do it right. And one of the things we need to unlearn and unpack, you guys, is this. Is that spiritual formation in the West, it's not like this all over the world, in America, it's so much information and knowledge-based. Do you know what I mean? We just pound information into you and make sure you believe the right things. Remember what I said last week, and I've been saying this again, we are educated well beyond our obedience. You like it, CC? We are educated well beyond. We know, you ever see those bodybuilders with enormous upper bodies and they got legs like this? That's us. Our heads are enormous. We got so much information. And our legs are tiny chicken legs. Why? Because we're doing nothing with the information we have. James 1.21, do not just merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. What? Do what it says. Are you doing that? Am I doing that? Come on, somebody. Listen, uh, so the byproduct of putting so much information on knowledge information is this, right? We train you to make sure you believe the right things. We believe the right, listen, I'm going to say this disclaimer a lot. I am all about believing the right things, okay? I am f- committed to the nth degree on theological accuracy, okay? In 30 years of preaching, nobody's come up to me and said, you're preaching heresy. Well, somebody did, but that's because I challenged them on their racism, but that's another whole story. We want to make sure you believe the right things. After all, the most important thing is that we save you so you can go to heaven. Forget about God saying no. It's about the kingdom and bringing heaven down to earth. Anyway, we want to make sure you believe the right things. We want to make sure you believe the right things. And here's what happens. The church divorced two things that were never supposed to be separated. Believing has to be together with following. Believing has to go together with following. Biblical belief is not mental assent. Listen, biblical faith entails commitment to follow. Jesus said, believe me, five times in all the Gospels. You know how many times he said, follow me? Twenty. If you you divorce following from believing, belief dies in the process. we got to unpack and unlearn, man. Oh, by the way, just on a side note, because we've emphasized believing, most Christians think that the most important thing is being right. we got to be right. Okay, again, nobody come up to you and go, are you kidding? Saying you don't care. I am committed to every single word in Scripture. It is the authority of my life, and I want to make sure that we do this right. But. I don't find in Scripture where Jesus says, being right is what I've called you to do. No, he says, lay down your life. I'm glad you're tracking with me today, Kimmy. By the way, I had two older white folks yesterday, uh, last week say, I want to say amen and yes last Sunday, but I just couldn't. I said, be free, white guy. Be free, be free, be free, be free. You know who you are. Be free. It's okay. It's okay. Be free. Nobody has been argued into the kingdom, but many people have been loved into the kingdom. 
It is perfectly possible to be biblically orthodox and radically loving at the same time. Are you a follower of Jesus with an enormous head walking around? By the way, I wasn't planning sharing that analogy, but let's go with it. Just walking around, you're bumping your head against people, you know, and your legs like this big because you're doing nothing with your faith. Discipleship is not a class you take. It's the course of your life. The overarching theme. Discipleship is not a class you take. It's about your life. It's not just head knowledge. It's about your life. And, and a real simple way to describe discipleship is as I'm learning from Jesus, what am I learning? I'm learning how to lead my life as Jesus would lead my life if he were me. So I'm a teacher. I am learning how to live my life as a teacher as Jesus would live his life if he were a teacher, if he were me. I'm a cook. I am learning how to live my life as a cook. If Jesus were a cook, if he were, I'm learning how to live my life as Jesus. You know what the New Testament calls that? Is doing everything in the name of Jesus. I'm learning how to live my life as Jesus would live my life. We're not just learning, we're not just learning about how did he lead his life and his life was lived. He did a wonderful job of that. Would you agree? Yeah. So nobody else could lead his life again, including him. He's interested in your life, he's in my life. How do we live our lives? What is a follower? What is a disciple? Here's a simple definition. It's a what? A follower. Someone who follows Jesus. Someone who stays strictly just scriptural. Is that okay? Disciple is someone who follows Jesus. It's whole life commitment to the whole person of Jesus. Whole life commitment to the whole person of Jesus. Now, here's where we're going today, okay? Because this is a long series. We're going to talk about what it means to follow, what it means to make disciples, all this stuff. But it's important if, that if you're making disciples because you're replicating you, that you get what it means to be a disciple. Does that make sense? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Is that how it goes? Apple, yeah. So we want to make sure that you know what it means to follow Jesus because we don't. We don't want other enormous heads walking around because that's what preach. Okay? So let me take you way back. Let me take you way, way back. Way, way back. I want to introduce a word called Talit. Talmid. Say it with me. Talmid. Talmid. Tamid is a Hebrew word that literally means disciple or a student. Do you know that rabbis were like rock stars of the first century? They were like rock stars of the first century. Rabbis, you want, rabbis were some of the most famous, popular, influential people, revered people walking around. And Tamid were students or disciples of these rabbis. And here's the thing. In order to become a student or a Tamid of a rabbi, you had to be exceptional. You had to be brilliant. You had to have the 4.0 GPA. You had to 36 on ACT. And when I was going to school, it was 1,600 on the SAT. What is it now? Is it 1,600? Okay. You had to do that. You had to, you, had, you, had to be the, you had to be the elite of the elite. And that's why most people didn't make it to become a Italian. They What do they do? If you didn't make it as a Tamid, you wound up going into the family business. You wound up learning a trade like fishing or carpentry. How did you become a Talmud? There was an application process. 
What was the application process? Check this out. Do you know by age of 12, most Jewish boys had memorized the first five books of the Old Testament? First five books of the Old Testament, entirety of it. In order to become talented, he also needed to know the prophets and the writings. So a test to be a, to be a, 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 a Talmud of a rabbi would be something like this. A rabbi would say, tell me the number of times the word Lord is found in the 11th chapter of Leviticus. See, you, you had to be the elite of the elite. Here's the reason why. Because your reputation as a rabbi hung on who your students were. Your students dictated the kind of rabbi you were. That's why you didn't take anybody in because the more exceptional your students, people would say the more exceptional the rabbi. That's just why when Jesus walked on the scene in the first century, people were like, what? Because he, no application process? What, 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 what? You're, you're inviting people to follow you? Wait, wait, you're extending an invitation to follow? That's not how it, and who did he invite to fo- follow? Uneducated, rough and tough from Galilee. And once you became a Talmud of a rabbi, here's what it meant. You literally left your family and your business, whatever it was, and you followed him everywhere he went. That was, and you didn't just seek to know what the rabbi said. That was important. But the whole thing was about becoming just like your rabbi. The highest compliment for a Talmud would have been, you're just like your teacher. So if the rabbi went to the market, you saw a group of Talmud, so if that rabbi went to another town, you saw a group of Talmud. Did you see that even today? Rabbi went to visit someone who's sick. Talmud. Rabbi ate. What did you do? You ate. When rabbi slept, you what? You slept. By the way, when you think about this, it gives you meaning to when Jesus is walking on water and Peter says what? Lord, if it's you, tell me to Come. And most of us that grew up in church are like, ah, Peter lacked faith. I just think Peter was going, you're my rabbi. I'm your student. I'm going to do what you do. So there developed a Jewish blessing that said, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Do you know what that meant? Check this out. That meant that you were following so closely to your rabbi that when the dust was kicked up, you would be caked in that dust. You would be, because you were so closely following your rabbi. You need to understand when Jesus says, follow me in the Gospels, this is what they have in mind. See, if you follow Jesus, as this Talmud, you'll find yourself amongst the broken and the messed up that nobody wants to deal with. See, if you follow Jesus, you'll find yourself among the sick that people want to avoid. See, if you follow Jesus, you might get criticized by the religious. Actually, check that. You will get criticized by the religious. 
If you follow Jesus, your family might think you're crazy. His did. I know some of y'all sitting there going, my family thinks I'm crazy. If you follow Jesus, you may be unjustly treated and fairly accused. If you follow Jesus, he may just say, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. See, what I'm trying to ask you is this. Is following Jesus costing you anything? Hello, somebody. Is following Jesus costing you anything? Let me say it one more time. Is following Jesus costing you anything? One more time. Is following Jesus costing you anything? We're going to look at a story in the book of Luke, chapter 9. Do you know what I noticed about Jesus? He would have made a terrible mega church pastor. I said this last week. Because when he invited people to follow him, do you know? Read the Gospels. When Jesus invited people to follow him, very few people actually followed him. Most people said, no, no thanks. Let me say that again. American Christians sitting in a very comfortable sanctuary in the year 2019. Very few people follow Jesus. Most people were like, if that's what it means to follow you, no thanks. And we're going to meet three guys. And of course, they're men, right? Who on the surface looked like they were following Jesus or wanted to follow him. But Jesus goes, Jesus never, listen, Jesus never did what the modern church does, which is what? Bow your heads with me, close your eyes. Now say this prayer. I know I messed some of y'all last week because I said, I asked you, I'm like, do you think praying a prayer made you a Christian? Did you make a decision or did you make a commitment? Jesus goes, if you want to follow me, here it is. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like, okay? Expectations. Here's what you're agreeing to. Some of you guys might hear, literally, you've been in church all your life. Some of you might hear for the first time what it means to follow Jesus. And you might want to go, no thanks. And you know what I think Jesus would say? That's okay. You'll see. And in these three interactions, there's three questions that I think Jesus is asking you and me. Okay? You ready? Are you ready? That's not one of the questions, by the way. Are you ready? You ready? Okay. So, 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 and so at the end of this deal, there's going to be a challenge for you. But so here it is. The first guy. Luke chapter 9, verse 15. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Question, follower or wannabe follower? Follower or wannabe Follower. That sounds, like, that sounds like a committed guy. He's saying, he's saying more than most of us would say. I'll follow you wherever you go. No restrictions, no limitations, Jesus. I'll follow wherever you go. Listen to what Jesus says. 58. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. My translation, Jesus turns to him and says, hey, bro, I'm homeless. And I have a feeling this guy was like, nah, no thanks. 
Do you know why? Because when Jesus asks him that, he's putting skin on what it means to follow him wherever. Jesus is essentially asking him this question. First question for you and me. Ready? You want to follow me anywhere? Well, what about there? Listen. When Jesus says, what about there? He's pointing to a place where following Jesus will threaten your security, your comfort, and your convenience. Jesus, what about there? The very place where following me will threaten your comfort, your security, and your convenience. What, wherever, there, there too? And I have a feeling this guy was like, well, did I say wherever? I meant this sort of figuratively, you know, poetically, wherever. And Jesus goes, no. See, I find that it's easy to make general commitments about what it means to follow Jesus, but when he says specific, we just go, I don't know about that. I used to tell this story. When I was in college, you know what my favorite hymn was? It still is today. I surrender all. Man, as a 19-year-old, I was like, I surrender all. I surrender all. And I felt like God sometimes sitting up there going, you have a scooter, you have some books, and $50 in your bank account. I surrender now. So you know what this means for some of us this morning? This means when you say, I surrender all, he's saying, how about your pride? How about your pride that motivates you to do things to impress people rather than to glorify me? How about you surrender your plans? See, how about the fact that you have your two, five, seven-year plan laid out, and you're saying, Jesus, sign off on it. How about you no longer asking me to ride the passenger seat? How about surrender all means all that we have in terms of money? How about the fact that many of us give Jesus leftovers? What about your marriage? What about your addictions? What about your ministry? What does I surrender all mean for you? Let's keep pressing. So when Jesus says, what about there? He's pointing to there that causes most difficulty for you because there might be the place that threatens your comfort security. So here's what this may mean. When Jesus says, what about there? He may point to your office because you've been there for six years and nobody knows you're a Christian yet. Jesus says, okay, what about there? And he may point to your neighbor across the street who's not a Christian, lost his wife, and is struggling and searching. Jesus, for some of us, is, what about there? And he points to our childhood home where some forgiveness and reconciliation needs to happen. And Jesus, what about there? He may also point overseas and say, you know, I've been prompting your heart to adopt. When are you going to do that? For some of us, what about there is that life group for white learners? There is the place where comfort, security, and convenience is threatened.
Well, Jesus, what about there? Do you take it as a suggestion or a command? See, see, I think most of us, I think, when Jesus, what about there? We go, well, you're like a consultant. You know, we hire consultants. We hire consultants to come and give us advice. We pay them a lot of money. But at the end of the day, we make the call. I've got news for you, and this is good news, clap. Jesus doesn't do consulting. He never has, and he never will. You know what Jesus does? Jesus does Jesus. And if you cheat him like a consultant, eventually he stops showing up for the meetings. You know what I think it means when Jesus is there? I think there is the place where we are forced out of our comfort zone. Here's my definition of out of our comfort zone. It's the place where saying yes to Jesus saying, means saying no to me. CZ! I sat up there and they're practicing their songs and he and I don't talk about what songs they're singing. And he's saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. You all sit there singing, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Do you know what you're saying? Out of your comfort zone is we're saying yes to Jesus. Do you know, can I just tell you real quick? Do you know people in our church have said yes to Jesus, which meant no? Do you know what it looked like? For some, saying yes to Jesus meant no to raising their kids in America and moving overseas. For some people, saying yes to Jesus meant saying no to living with your boyfriend and your girlfriend. For some people, saying yes to Jesus and no meant finally telling people about the fact that you struggle with pornography. And you're inviting people into community. For some people saying yes to Jesus and no meant dying to your self-dependence and pride and asking for help. For some people saying yes to Jesus meant saying no to comfort and actually pursuing relationships with other people of other race. Let me ask you a question. What is saying yes to Jesus? look like for you what about there second question let's keep going what verse are we on there for 59 so he said to another man follow me but he replied lord first let me go and bury my father question follower or wannabe follower (laughs) you're so smart He sounds like he's a follower. Look, check this out. He says, Lord, and the word Lord is a term that's used of a slave to his master. Lord, he calls Jesus Lord. There's some recognition. I know who this is. Lord, but what's the next word? What's the next word? First. What's he saying? I want to follow you, but not now. I'm committed to pursuing you, Jesus, but not now right now and then what does Jesus say to him verse 60 Jesus said to him let the dead bury their dead ouch now I'll get to that in a minute but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God Jesus says enough hard things so let's not give credit to something that Jesus didn't say when he said let the dead bury their dead he's not saying you can't go to your dad's funeral The Jewish law was clear. If your dad was dead or dying, you had to be by the bedside and didn't leave until the burial was done. 
So what this man is saying was, let, the dead, let, my, let me go first go bury my father. He's saying, Jesus, when my parents die, then I will follow you. We don't know why he said that. It may be because maybe if he told his parents, I'm going to follow this unconventional rabbi, they would have said no. Maybe he was afraid to tell them, I can't, I can't do the family business thing because I'm following Jesus. Maybe he had a ginormous inheritance coming, and following Jesus would have meant, mm, your inheritance is gone. We don't know why. But essentially what he's saying is, I'll follow you, but not right now. I want to be committed to you, but not today. Am I talking to anybody? Because that's you. Do you mind if I just kind of get out on one knee? It's not because I'm begging. I'm tired. For some of us, we know what it means to follow Jesus. It's not that we don't know. We know actually all too well. We just don't want to do it. We just don't want to do it. And our excuse is, one day I'll follow you, but not today. One day I'll follow you, but not right now. St. Augustine, anybody familiar with him? St. Augustine, who's obviously like an enormous Christian philosopher. St. Augustine, when he was a pagan, okay, had a, had a mistress, had a woman. And by the way, if you're a dude that struggles with lust, you need to be mentored by Augustine. Read his writings. So one day he goes to hear Ambrose, okay, preach. And Ambrose preaching on the holiness of God and the Ten Commandments. And Augustine over, is overcome with conviction, right? But he doesn't, he, he has a mistress, he has a woman. So he prayed this prayer that became an immortal prayer. And we have it on record. You know what the prayer was? It was this, Lord, make me good, but not yet. Millions of people have prayed their prayers since. Lord, make me good. Not yet. Lord, I want to follow you, but not right now. I want to follow you, but don't ask me to stop doing that. I want to follow you, but don't ask me to not go there anymore. I want to follow you, but don't ask me to break up. I want to follow you. And the question, the second question that Jesus asked is, well, what about now? Like, how long are you going to say later? How long are you going to say? You know, well, when I talk to people, essentially about why they're not all in and committed to following Jesus with their whole hearts, the excuse is something along the lines of, well, tomorrow, tomorrow I'll do it, tomorrow. Tomorrow. But the word tomorrow is not in the Holy Spirit's vocabulary. When Jesus gives an invitation to follow him, there's an RSVP date and it says today. It means right now. It means right now. Can I just share something with you? I've been a pastor for 30 years. And do you know that for most people, tomorrow only became today when they went through suffering? Let me say that again. 
You're sitting there going, yeah, I'm a Christian, man. I kind of do the thing and I want to follow, but not right now, not today. For most of us, tomorrow became today. When hardships come, when dreams are shattered, when life gets out of control. There's some people here where tomorrow became today when their daughter was diagnosed with cancer. For some people, it was when their addiction became absolutely uncontrollable. For some people, it was when the relationship that meant everything to them absolutely fell apart. Tomorrow only became today when literally their self-dependence, their will, and I can do it, was utterly, utterly stripped. You know, one of the most sobering verses in all the New Testament is Hebrews 3.15. You know what it says? Remember what it says. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. For Israel, later became never. I don't know who I'm talking to, but I'm hearing in my head, Peter, tell them, Don't say tomorrow, don't say tomorrow you'll deal with your secret sin. Don't say tomorrow I'm going to walk across the street and talk to my neighbor. Don't say tomorrow I'm going I'm I'm to leave living with my boyfriend. Don't say tomorrow I'm going to be generous with my resources. Don't say tomorrow I'll check into foster. Don't say tomorrow today. Can I just say this? Tomorrow's not guaranteed. Tomorrow's not guaranteed. You ready for one more or are we done? Because we do have to finish this passage, yes? Okay. Because this is the hardest of them all. See, see, this is, this is a heavy Sunday. Yeah? But you know what I sense? I sense conviction of the Holy Spirit, some people resisting, and some people saying, help me do this, Jesus. The last guy. Still another said, I follow you, Lord. But first, apparently, he didn't listen to the conversation that Jesus was having earlier. First, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Again, another guy that seems reasonable. I want to follow you, but let me say goodbye to my family. Say goodbye to moms and pops. Come on, Jesus. And again, when you take it into the context, saying goodbye, leaving your family in this context wasn't just a, a hug, a hug, I'll see you later. It was a goodbye, and it was parties, and that would last for weeks at a time. And what does Jesus say? Listen to his response. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Jesus used an analogy of a guy who's plowing a field. By the way, I don't know if this is how you plow a field, but just run with me, okay? He's plowing a field, okay? Oh, stop using your hands. Okay, just, okay, so you're plowing the field. I don't know. You're, plow, you're plowing a field, right? And you need to, listen, you need, listen, you need undivided attention. 
and undivided focus. Otherwise, you break the plow, cow goes off. This man says to Jesus, following you is important, but it's not my top priority. Following you is something I want to do, but I'm not willing to go all in. And so he keeps looking back. He keeps looking back. He keeps looking back. Have you heard of the Knights Templar? The Knights Templar. Fierce warriors during the Crusades, hired by the Catholic Church to essentially protect travelers that were traveling from Western Europe and their pilgrimage. Can you show that picture? Did you know the Knights Templar were some of the more, let's put this in quotes, devout people? Do you know that they took an oath to chastity, to poverty, and to obedience? Do you know that these guys faithful to things like prayer? Do you know that these guys took very seriously their relationship to their God? But do you know that when they were baptized, they would take their sword and they would kneel and be submerged underwater, but they stuck their sword up. Their entire body would be submerged underwater, except their sword. You know what they were saying? They were saying, you could have all of me, but not my sword. You could tell me what to do in every area of my life, but what I do on the battlefield, who I kill, and what I do, that is up to me. You might say, I'm not holding up a sword. But what are you holding up? What are you saying to Jesus? You could have all of me, but not this. What are you saying? I am committed to you, but not this. Think about following Jesus. If he doesn't want to be your top priority, he wants to be your only priority. He doesn't want to be one of many. He wants to be your one and only. If Jesus is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Jesus wants you, but he won't share you. It's not because he's insecure. It's not because he's needy, but it's because he loves you and he wants your freedom. Because the thing that we hold up, it's a good thing, but that good thing becomes a God thing. And we put all our worth and security and comfort and convenience to that thing. He wants your freedom because he knows it'll enslave you. 
Because what happens when you finally get that and you realize, is this it? Your greatest fear in life should not be that you'd fail, but that you would succeed at something that doesn't matter. What are you holding up and saying, all of me, but not this? Do you have your hand to the plow, but you're constantly looking back? What are you looking at? I remember in the Old Testament, remember Lot's wife? Lot's wife, she turned back and she turned into stone. You're not going to turn into stone, but your heart will become like stone. What are you looking back at? And do you not see that he wants your freedom? My favorite story of this is 1 Kings 19. I know I didn't get to preach that part, 1 Kings 19. You know what happens in 1 Kings 19? That's when Elijah is called by God to go recruit Elisha to be the next prophet. Elijah is walking up to Elisha's house, and you know what Elisha's doing? He is plowing with 12 oxen. Gives you a sense of his wealth. He's doing pretty well for himself. Elijah's thinking, I don't know if this guy's going to want to be a prophet, prophet of Israel, and leave all this. But when the invitation's offered, Elijah doesn't go, you know what, let me do that part-time, because on the other side, I want to do, you know, I heard that being a prophet doesn't pay very well, so can I? You know what Elisha does? Check this out. The Bible says that he killed 12, 24 oxen, took all of his farm plows, and he burned it. He burned it. Then he invited his whole neighborhood, and they had an enormous barbecue. Because Elisha was saying, if I'm going to be committed to the plow God has given me, I'm going to burn all my old ones. Cece, do you know what I woke up with this morning? I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Elisha knows something. He knows that he's found the pearl of great price. What are you talking about, Peter? Do you know what happens to a follower of Jesus? He looks at all the stuff, all the stuff, value, worth, and comfort, all that stuff, and he says, all of this is nothing compared to, what does Jesus say in Matthew 13? It's like a great merchant. Can you put that up, please? Kingdom of like a great merchant looking for fine pearls. When he had found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he, and he bought it. Jesus says, a follower of Jesus knows that all the stuff that he sells, all the stuff that gives away is nothing because he's found the pearl of great price. He's found something that's worth valuable more than anything else he has in the world. And so not begrudgingly, not with sadness, gladly with joy, he sells everything that he has because he's found the pearl of great price. Have you found the pearl of great price? A follower of Jesus, someone who says, following Jesus may mean that I lose this love for Christ, but I will gain love from Christ that nothing can compare. 
The follower of Jesus says, the treasure that, the money that I give away is nothing compared to the treasure that I have in Christ. I have found the pearl of great price. And nothing can compare to this. Nothing. Nothing. If you do not say, you are the pearl of great price, you will not follow him. You will not learn from him. Why? How could you trust him? He don't know what he's talking about. You'll never follow him. He don't want my benefit. You'll never follow him. If you're sitting here this morning, If you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, what does all this mean? What does all this mean? And your immediate reaction is, can you please look up here? I'm almost done. Your immediate reaction is, I, got, I, got, I know what I got. I got to go back and I got to fix and I got I to, or I got to kind of inch a little bit towards, no, 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 no. Listen, 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 listen. On my GPS, my phone, when I want to go somewhere, the first question that comes up is this question. Directions from current location. It's saying, where you want to go starts right here. God says, you don't need to go back and fix. You don't. He says, I take you right where you are. Is that good news to anybody? Come on, somebody. Is that good news to anybody? He says, any follower of Jesus, jacked up, messed up, he doesn't even care what you did last night. He says, if you are committed to wanting to follow me, I'm going to take you from right where you are. But I got to go back and fix it. He says, no, 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 no. But can I just contribute? He says, no, no, no. Right where you are. We talk a lot in this church about showing up with your whole self. And following Jesus, for some of us, will begin today saying, right where I am. Jesus says, I'll take you from right where you are. Make a decision to commit. Don't wait till tomorrow. 